Hello, beautiful neighborhood. Hope you're having a great start to the week. I mentioned last week that I'd realized since a lot of us have been in lockdown, I thought we would have more time to listen to podcasts, but without the daily commute to and from work, I had had less time to listen to podcasts and realized that might have been the case for some of you. So while I initially got cracking and started delivering two episodes weekly this year, that I thought suddenly I realized, oh my gosh, I might have been bombarding you guys and had noticed some of you were taking longer to catch up. So that I announced that I was going to take a couple of weeks of just re-releasing episodes for Yays of Our Lives so there'd only be one new episode per week. But I also asked you all to let me know if I was desperately wrong and quite a few of you sent me messages saying that twice a week has been lovely and uh, a really nice distraction during some really challenging times. So I'm sorry that I was wrong. <laughs> for those people who think that I was right and who are having trouble catching up, you should have messaged me because now the other voice have been louder and have won. Uh, I will release, uh, re-release one more episode today, but then return to the normal schedule from the next episode. Uh, I was going to take a couple of weeks of just doing re-releases, but I will have a fresh one for you on Thursday. But for now, I've got one more re-release for you, which has been one of the episodes that's brought me the most yay this year. I've actually listened to it quite a few times just for my own personal reasons, because our guest is just an extraordinary human being who brings so much light but also covers such serious issues so well. I mean, I've already, obviously, you'll rehear the intro again, uh, so I don't really need to ramble on here, but uh, a couple of you shared the episode last week, which reminded me that it had been such an impactful episode for so many of you and that if anyone had missed out on it, it would be a great time to catch up. So re-releasing that one today and then back to the normal schedule and hopefully uh, I, there might be a few other reshares um, in the coming months or weeks, but generally only if a guest drops out or if uh, it just is, yeah, if the schedule gets too tight or for whatever reason, otherwise you'll have two episodes a week. Hope you're having a wonderful week and a seizing your yay. Happiness can only really come from within and we're not going within to find happiness because I think a lot of us are, are shit scared of what we're going to find. You know, if we just stop for a little bit, I mean, we're so busy. We can get really stuck sometimes in negative emotion and self-doubt and all the stuff we've talked about, but it is so important to remember that no feeling is final. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. While it does happen a few times in every episode, I'm sure you can sometimes hear when I've forgotten that we're recording for the entirety of a chat because I'm enjoying our guest so much. You've had a sneak preview of how much I admire Hugh Van Kylenberg in Yays of Our Lives a few weeks ago when Abby Jelmy and I bonded over how obsessed we are with his wit and wisdom, and this episode took that obsession to another level. Hugh strikes the most beautiful balance between endearingly self-deprecating and calmly authoritative, navigating effortlessly between hysterical laughter and deep exploration of mental health and personal tragedy. 
His family's journey with mental illness is both heart-wrenching and heartwarming, and what he has turned that experience into with the Resilience Project is changing the world for the better, from classrooms to AFL clubs to wherever you're listening right now. Through presentations, school curriculum, events, and his thought-provoking book, with a second coming very soon, Hugh uses humour, vulnerability, and storytelling to support the mental health of Australians through the pillars of gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. With cricket references, puns, and relatable stories aplenty, he is changing the way we talk about resilience and well-being and is quickly becoming one of my very favourite people in the world. Like all our guests, Hugh didn't wake up one day with the clarity of purpose that he has right now and takes us through all the dots that didn't connect until he looked back years later with hindsight. From professional cricket to school teaching and laying gas pipes before travelling to India for love, everything about this man is fascinating and I couldn't be more excited to share his passion and energy with you all. I hope you enjoy and laugh as much as I did. I realised I didn't do my hair. Like, I don't think it matters, but... <laughs> It's all over the place. <laughs> I love it. You are the most endearingly self-deprecating human. I've read your book so many times now, but every time I read it, I have such a good chuckle about how when you first went out teaching and had a class of grade five girls, the first question you got was, why are your eyes so googly? <laughs> They're not even that googly, but it makes me laugh so and it was, much. And the best thing was like all the girls, none of the girls were like, oh. Don't say that. They all look like going, that is a very good question. I'd also like to know the answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, normally I would kick off now by asking what the most down-to-earth thing is about you, which is even more interesting for people like yourself whose name and work with the Resilience Project many of us have heard of, giving you not just a glossy social media profile, but one associated with incredible altruism and mindfulness. So, I mean, you're definitely on a pedestal in my book, so I don't necessarily expect you to be so down to earth but you are and that's what makes your writing so impactful you can just deal with such heavy topics in such a light and hilarious (laughs) way well thank you for that that's a very that's a very nice thing to say I hope Sarah I hope that I mean you've you have lots of famous people on your podcast I I definitely don't think I'm a famous or well-known person so I hope that absolutely everything about me is down to earth like everything but I'll tell you some things that are not down to earth about me there are a couple of things that are not I know this is the opposite of what you're asking (laughs) But no, I'm this doing, is the best. <laughs> because I'm doing it because I feel I, I hope that absolutely everything about me is down to earth. I hope every interaction people have with me is very down to earth. However, and I'm going to sound like a bit of a flog from Melbourne here, but when I get my coffee every morning, <laughs> I really need it. I my order is a strong latte, three quarters full, and if it's not three quarters, I get really upset. <laughs> like I just, <laughs> it is extraordinary how often it's like four fifths or like. Stop yeah, it. Yeah, it's like 55% or like, it's just, it's not, I just go, I look at it and go, that's clearly not three quarters. Like you must know it's not three quarters. And I get really upset. I'm not quite the person who can go say, excuse me, can you do this again? It's not three quarters. But I get really <laughs> upset about it. So that's one thing that's very much just not down to earth about me. That's amazing. So there's one. Here's another one for you. And I only realized this this morning because I was thinking about this looking through some of your questions. But when I go to a cafe, I really like to be sitting up against the wall so I can see everything. I don't know if that's not down to earth, but I can't have my back to the play. I need to know who's coming in, where people are coming from, what's going on. (laughs) And if I can't, if I can't get a seat and my back to the wall, I'll go and find somewhere else. So I think that's a bit, that's not down to earth at all. You're such a diva. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) You're basically Mariah Carey. (laughs) 
I'll tell you a funny story. This is not really answering your question, but I just thought of it. The place I get coffee from, and I thought of them because they always know my three quarters, always. Like they're amazing. It's in Collingwood in Melbourne in a, a street called Sackville Street. And I go there every morning. They're meticulous with their life. Anyway, it's called a coffee or a coffee. It's like one word, a, and then coffee. I, I've never known how I meant to say it. <laughs> but this guy, this guy the other day was messaging me because he, he wanted to catch up about something. I was like, yeah, no, we can do that. And I said, I will catch up at a coffee. He goes, yeah, sounds good. And he said, um, where should we go? And I said, we'll go to a coffee. And he goes, yeah, mate, totally on board the coffee idea. Where? <laughs> I've already agreed to the coffee. Yeah, like, yeah, let's yeah, move on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, he goes, yeah, I'm mate, totally on board where? And I said, a coffee. He goes, okay, I'm, I'm, mate, I'm so happy to drink coffee with you. I just need to know where. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> the, the place is called a coffee. <laughs> That's such a dad joke. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's like me saying, so I've got this guy on the podcast today. Oh, who? Hugh. Who? No, Hugh. Who? <laughs> it's, it's when you order, when I order, like takeaway food, I just say my son's name or my wife's name because I can't. Hugh is just impossible for people. Anyway. It's not even that unusual. I love that you're like the human embodiment of resilience, but <laughs> these two things in life just absolutely make you crumble. And one is just a pure fraction math problem. Like <laughs> four fifths is very close to three quarters, but you're just like, I cannot. No, it's I cannot. too much milk though. <laughs> It's too much milk, so I can't do it. I can't believe you even can notice the difference between three quarters and four fifths in a coffee cup. But I, I can see you're just like, you know what? Gratitude, empathy, but like, fuck that. If my coffee's not right, I swear to God. <laughs> there will be no gratitude coming your way. There, and there will be no empathy. I mean, the fractions are clear. They're clear. Yeah. Use a ruler. Sort it out. <laughs> the amount of times, the amount, exactly, the amount of times I put in my order and I look at the person going, I know you're not going to get this right. Like, <laughs> I, know, I just know, like, you're not listening. You haven't listened to the strong bit. You haven't listened to the three quarter, whatever it is. I just, I just know this is not going to come out the way I want it. And, but I'm meant to be the guy who's like empathetic and but I'm not when it comes to coffee. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. I mean, I love that. I love that you just own it. You're like, look, I'm incredibly resilient for all things except the fractions of my coffee. You've got to know yourself. You've got to know what makes you yay. And well, as you know, the first section of every podcast is your way to yay, which is where we trace back through all the chapters before the one that we often walk into in your life today where, you know, I think it's so easy to assume that you always had as much direction and purpose and clarity as you do now, but most of the time that's not the case. We all came from somewhere through many different twists and diversions and you have the most fascinating story. I mean, a cricket career to a Bachelor of Education to India, like so many different dots that connect now with yeah. hindsight, but th that maybe didn't at the time. So take us back to young Hugh, Graythorn Primary, Kerry Baptist Grammar. What were you like at school and how did you, you know, enter into your first career aspirations as a cricketer? I can so, because yeah, you're a lawyer, weren't you? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. It's so like, <laughs> you're so articulate and so well-researched. It's like, it's... <laughs> You can, you can put on this whole entrepreneur act, but I can see that I can hear the lawyer coming like articulate research, <laughs> all that stuff. Dot points. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> dot points. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's funny that you say that about like joining the dots because it's so true. A lot of people like would say to me, oh, like you've managed to get to this point in the resilience project. Like, has this always been your ambition? And I can look back on my life and join the dots and go, yeah, that made me do that. Then I did that. And that made me do that. And because of that, I did that. And now we have the resilience project, but I felt very lost for a very long time, like a very long time. I, 
gosh, I, as a primary school kid, I was incredibly shy, like painfully shy and dreaded situations where I was going to be surrounded by people that I didn't know too well because I just was like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to talk to people. I'm um, googly. I mean, what am I going to do about that? <laughs> I've got googly eyes. What, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> who even am I? I mean, who am yeah, I? Yeah, very good. <laughs> You're very good with this pun must be very popular with dads because like dads love a good pun and this is littered with puns. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's just it's just endless. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, primary school kid, very shy. I love sports so much. And if it wasn't for sport, I don't know how I would have made my way through it. That was kind of what I got confidence from in, in primary school. I can't remember. I don't think I wrote about it in this book. I'm writing another book at the moment and I think that's where I've written it recently, but I actually remember when I was in grade three, we were playing Tiggy. We went into the toilets to hide, me and some other kids, and we were hiding, like sort of just giggling. And I saw myself in the mirror and I remember, I actually remember, this is so weird, I had a moment of going, oh, I didn't think I looked like that. <laughs> like, I was like, I was just so disappointed with the way I looked. That was at nine. I was like, oh, oh. damn, I wish I was like, I thought I looked more like that. Or like, just quite just a really, shock to see so, yourself in the mirror. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's not what I wanted to look like. And I was disappointed. With, and so oh, I told no. <laughs> I need to tell you that story. Not so people go, oh, the poor guy. I just remember feeling like, ah, oh, I don't think I'm like, I don't think I'm a very good looking person and I'm also very shy. <laughs> so that's not a great combo. Like, so, but I think a lot of people go through that, like insecurities. We all have insecurities that we feel from a young age. They were my insecurities. Like I'm pretty shy and also I don't think I'm a very good looking person. Um, also, I had a beautiful, I also had a beautiful, my, my sister's stunning and my brother's just the most beautiful man on the earth. So I think that was like glaring, like a big thing for me. It was like, oh, I don't Aww. look like. And I remember, mom, I actually remember mum saying once, and I love mum. She's amazing. And she meant this in a nice way. But I remember mum saying, oh, sorry, darling. We just got better as we went along, didn't we? Because they were like the younger. <laughs> <laughs> so the Resilience Project came from that statement. Like that was the beginning of it all. <laughs> I'm going to have to grow a thick skin from now. Totally, totally, <laughs> totally. But the point of that is just that I remember at primary school, like shy, but at sport was I was like, I love my sport. Went to secondary school very much. I love going to secondary school after about year nine when I was sort of more comfortable, but found my voice and love sports still. And, and school was great. I loved it. And, and I was my, saw my, I see a psychologist quite regularly. And she said to me the other day, she said, you were built, you were designed for secondary school. Like, like wow. lo absolutely love social situations, very good at sport. And, and that for me was like, you know, captain of everything at the final year of school and captain of school, all, all this, like did all this stuff that I, and then I, and this is the, I'm not saying that to show off, but then I, then I finished school and I went to uni and I was so lost. Like I was just mm. desperate for recognition, desperate for achievement. I couldn't achieve anything because there's no, people don't sew something into your blazer for <laughs> doing well at uni. <laughs> you you don't get walk. a certificate of participation for everything. Yeah, totally. Like <laughs> you, you do well at uni. And like, I remember I was doing studying psychology straight out of school and getting like an assignment back that I did really well at. And the teacher didn't even make eye, eye contact with me, just like dumped it on my desk and didn't say like, well done. That was awesome. Just dropped it. And I was like, uh, hello, is something to say well done? Like no one was patting me on the back ever. And I just felt very lost outside of school. And I'm just saying this so because a lot of people, I think, look at the resilience project and go, wow, like, gosh, that's such a big thing now. And, but it, for a long time, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I remember mm. feeling very lonely as well. I'd broken up with my girlfriend from school who was, she was just awesome, loved her. We were very you know, classic high school romance. Like we were together for a couple of years. It was like so in love. 
she ended up breaking with me, breaking up with me. She went to college and was very popular with everyone at college. And then, and I remember going, oh, well, hopefully we could get back together. And then she started dating an AFL footballer, and I was like, oh my gosh, oh, it's all over. Yeah, it's all over. Um, she was dating Jeff White, who played for for Melbourne Football Club. This is going back a long time, but I was like, oh my gosh, oh well, there goes. Anyway, so I just felt so down and so lost, and went and played cricket in England for a bit, and loved that. Came back to do primary school teaching, and it wasn't until I started doing primary school teaching that I felt like I started to belong somewhere again. Mm. But even that, like we all have psychological needs, right? We have a need to feel loved, to feel like we belong for status and for validation. There are psychological needs. Like we know about our physical needs, food, water, shelter. If I took those away from you, you wouldn't live too long. And our psychological needs are just as pressing. So when I look back on my life, I realized when I left school, I didn't feel like I was getting many of those. Like I'd lost my mm. long-term girlfriend. So I didn't feel very loved. I was not being told every day at school, I was amazing at sport and, <laughs> and popular, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then I, I just didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And so I kind of belonged. Is that a word? I belonged? Yeah. It is. past tense. It yeah. is. Thank you. Yep. Good. <laughs> Are you okay, mate? Like, <laughs> struggle town today. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. No, I love it so much. Um, so, yeah, I think I felt very lost for a long time. And it wasn't until I was, I think I was, I, I said, when I started teaching in a school, I felt really good again. It was great. But I just had this feeling inside of me, like, I would love to do more than this. I don't know what, but I feel like I'd love to. And I had no idea what it was. So it wasn't, this is age 27, 28. And I wasn't thinking, I'd love to start this movement where we help people to feel happier. It was just, I went to India because my ex fiance wanted to go there. Um, she, we'd been together for about five years, I think at that point. And she said, I'd love to go and travel. And I said, I'd much rather stay in Melbourne because like, my <laughs> friends are here and I like playing football in the winter and cricket in the summer. So I don't really, there's no time I can really go. Sorry. And, and it became apparent that she was going definitely and I didn't want to lose her. So I went, yep. Okay. I'm coming. Uh, and <laughs> didn't really want to go to India, but her father's Indian. So she wanted to go there. So we went there. And then a few weeks in, she kind of said, I think we should do some volunteer teaching. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that, but we ended up doing it. And I'm so, I owe her so much for this, but we ended up in this village of people where like they had nothing like, and you've read about this in the book and I, I won't go mm. into it for too long. Cause most people probably know the story, but people sleeping on the floor, people, you know, no electricity or well, they had electricity. They couldn't afford to have it switched on all that kind of stuff. And yet, they were the happiest people I've ever met in my entire life. And the whole time I was there, I just couldn't stop thinking about my little sister, Georgia, who was diagnosed with a mental illness, age 14, anorexia nervosa, body image issues. She stopped eating and it ravaged her and it ravaged our family. And I, when I was in India, I was remembering as a kid, when I was so much as a kid, like late teens, I remember thinking to myself, I wish I knew what I could do to help mum and dad and my brother feel happy again. Like I knew my sister's mental illness was way beyond me. I, I didn't know what to do to help her, but I remember thinking, I wish I knew what I could do to help mum and dad feel happy. Uh, and when I was in India, like literally 10 years later, my sister's still, you wouldn't say she was totally healthy at that point. I was there just thinking, oh my gosh, like there's something here. Like these people are onto something. They are onto something. And also I think we do a bit wrong back home. I think we're doing a little bit wrong back home. And so I guess that's where the Resilience Project started. I lived there for three months, did everything these people were doing, came back to Australia and I was like, right, I would love to share with everyone what these people do because we're doing so much wrong. I had a very similar, I actually have been to that Leila Dark what? Jammu region. No one's yeah. been there. I've never met anyone who's been there. I know. And we were guided and I wonder, I will have to show you a photo later by a guy called Stanzen. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Which really? 
I'm not sure if it could possibly be the same Stanson, but I mean, I don't know if that's... There's quite a few of them. Yeah, okay. A lot of, I feel like most of the people there were called Stanson. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then it's probably not the same one. It's probably like John or something really common. Yeah, yeah I, I, think it, I think that's the case. But even more, like quite seriously in the school, I felt like most of the kids, majority, of them, majority of them were called Stanson. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's really yeah. inconvenient then for yeah. our beautiful um, it is. But <laughs> sliding still, doors but moment still. story. <laughs> but still, that's amazing. I, I don't think yeah. I've ever chatted to someone who's been to Layla Dark. What an amazing place. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And that trip combined with, I had a very similar revelation to you there and then a couple of years later in rural Rwanda of all places, expecting to feel this incredible sense of gratitude for, and of course, that's one level, you have incre- incredible gratitude for all the opportunities and technology and access we have to education and, yeah. and all kinds of privileges. But I had that same kind of reverse unexpected revelation of like why is there pure happiness here with kids playing with a leaf for 12 hours yeah. and adults breaking into song spontaneously because they can't contain the joy in their bodies but they don't have any of what I understood happiness to be which was success and yeah. progress and all those kinds of yeah. things and it's interesting you worded this in the book as you you saw the secret to happiness and I, I felt exactly the same way that the secret to happiness was not to attach it to all the things that we think back home it's attached to, but to, mm. to not have it attached to anything and for it to just be in mindfulness and enjoying each other's company and the very, very simple things. Yeah. It's almost like having less, you can be happier. It's strange. It's very true. I think we've become so distracted with feeling like we need more of something in order to be happy. Mm. Like we need to be earning more money. And when we earn that amount of money, then we'll feel happy or then we can buy that car, then we'll feel happy. Or if I could buy this house and live in a suburb like this, then I feel happy. If I get this many social media followers, then I feel happy, whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with all those things. Like they're all perfectly healthy things to aspire towards. But I think the problem is we attach happiness to them. But happiness Mm -hmm. can only really come from within. And we're not going within to find happiness because I think a lot of us are, are shit scared of what we're going to find. You know, if we just stop for a little bit, I mean, we're so busy. Like you look at your calendar, we, oh, there's a spare hour there. I'll do this here. I'll do this here. It's almost like we just don't want to be alone. Like we're worried about, and then when we are alone, we just grab our phone out straight away and we just get lost mm. in our phones. And I think there's so many problems in that and our devices are causing some issues for us, but I, I just think we've got to get better at just, I mean, the things I saw in this village, which you already know about, these people were so good at just focusing on what they did have. And it wasn't much, but my gosh, they just celebrated it. Like the things that they had a river, like they could get water from. They had a whole day. We went down to the river for a whole day. It was one of my first days there. And I was like, they said, we're going on an excursion to the river. And I went, oh, what are we doing there? They said, what do you mean? What do we, what do you mean we're doing? We're going to the river. Went, yeah. But like, what are the activities? <laughs> what activities are we doing? They went, what do you mean by, no, we're just going to go there. And they weren't joking. They went there for the entire day. And I said, so what's the, they said, oh, we're just, celebrating this like this is we get our water from here we're so lucky and i was mm-hmm. thinking god what would the equivalent be in australia like would that be like if we had a day we all just celebrated taps like we stopped and just like how, <laughs> how good is it we've got taps but i reckon we should like how lucky are we to have holes in the wall where water comes out at the exact temperature we want it as much as we want like that's amazing like if you are in a situation where you have water that comes out of your walls and you can choose the temperature two-thirds of the world's population is it two thirds or a third? Anyway, a lot of people around the world don't have that. Like the, the fact that you do it, you're very lucky. Mm. It, we only notice it when the hot water's not working. That's the only time we go, oh, for fuck's sake, you're kidding me. <laughs> Instead, we should yeah. be going, how lucky am I? This has happened once in a year. 
once in a year yeah. I haven't got hot water. That's amazing. Some people never ever get hot water. So I think some people say, yeah, but these people living in countries like that, they don't know what they don't have. So that's why it's easy for them. I mean, I, the story I tell in the book is that the kids at the first lunchtime said, sir, come see the playground. And I said, I'd love to see a playground. They pointed at this playground. They pointed over their shoulders at these swings that were, it was like two chains dangling down. The seat wasn't attached properly. And I thought they were saying, look how bad this is. But when I looked at their faces, I realized they're saying, check this out. And I was thinking, <laughs> I remember thinking, yeah, but that's because I don't know what they don't have. But then the local high school, which you probably saw in your travels, it's called the Tixay School, has beautiful mm. play equipment. And these kids walk past it every day. It doesn't bother them. When they get to their school, they're like, well, this is what we've got. How lucky are we? Mm. Um, so I think the more time we spend focusing on what we've got and not worrying about what we don't have, the happier it will be. Absolutely. I love the way that you describe how Stanzen uses dis. Like yeah. he would say, dis, look at this. And every yeah. time he'd point at all the things like shoes he had and he was like, dis, like look at my shoes and how many people you've since told that story to, even like AFL footballers now write dis on their wrist to remind themselves <laughs> of how lucky they are to have the things that they have. And it's really, really simple, a simple word in like the cutest little Layla Dark accent yeah. that brings you back to that idea that we are so incredibly lucky and we take all those things for granted in the quest for more. And I think you put it as the if and when kind of approach to happiness. If, if and then, if and then, oh, yeah, if and then. Yeah. If I buy this card, then I feel happy. doesn't work. If you attach your happiness to those things, then it will always be delayed and there'll always be something more. And yeah. if you're enjoying kind of the journey and the process, you'll always have happiness because you're not delaying it until sort of some yeah. random sequence of events. Totally. And, and I, just so people don't, I, I'm not saying, so everyone try and be more like me. I struggle with this stuff just as much as the next person. Like I've caught myself recently. I've been stuck on Instagram looking at like garden design, landscape design. Cause we're getting <laughs> like, we're getting the, the back garden landscaped and I'm looking at these different designs going, if we could get that done by summer, then summer's going to be awesome. Cause I'll be sitting out there in that area there and I'll be doing this. There. And I'm going, hang on a minute. You talk about this every day. I know what will happen is I'll get, the garden done i'll be sitting out there and i'll look around and go right what next oh if mm. we do that we need to get that we need to get the front garden done when the front garden's done then everything's going to be great and then we'll do that and i'll go right mm. a really good mate of mine has got this beautiful place in the mornington peninsula and he's put so much work into it the last couple of years and it's amazing and he sent me a message the other day and he said i said you must be so happy he sent me a picture of the kids having a great time out in the pool and and I said, you must be so happy. And he said, oh, it's so, I feel so ashamed. I've gone down the exact path you talk about every day. I'm starting to look at better houses now. Like oh, I'm wow. now looking at like, we need more land. This isn't enough land for the kids. And he said, it's ridiculous. Like if someone had showed me a picture of my place 10 years ago, I'd go, well, I've got it made. I'm set. We're never satisfied. Mm. And I think it is a really fine line between it being okay to aspire to more but yep. that not taking away from what you have. And it is a really subtle difference between those two things, but being aware of that difference, I think, is the important thing. And another thing I love about you and how you tell your story in such a, an endearingly self-deprecating way, as I said, it reminds me of Mark Manson's kind of abrupt reminder in The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck that not all of us are special snowflakes and not every kid should get a trophy for every achievement in school. I, mean, yeah. I personally think every child is a special snowflake in their own way and that, you know, there's nothing wrong with telling them that. <laughs> but yeah. it did make me think about how 
how easily others could assume that you were born with this special vision and clarity of purpose that you knew would positively impact hundreds and thousands of people. But it sounds like the young Hugh had no idea what a special thing you'd end up creating so many chapters down the track. So how did it all unravel into what the Resilience Project is today? Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, there are so many lessons looking back now that I feel like are really valuable for people who are wanting to try and create their own, whatever it is, whether you're trying to pursue your purpose or whatever it is. But there are so many points to be very honest with everyone where I tried to get out, like, but wasn't successful. So like, I, <laughs> I think I had um, my, my greatest passion in life and I, there are so many things I am not good at. But one of the things I've always been okay at is public speaking. I've always loved public speaking. Like at school, any opportunity to do public speaking, I just loved it. And I think it's because when we're in our darkest moments as a family, we would watch mum and dad love Billy Connolly, the comedian, and they'd put Billy Connolly on and we'd all watch him. And I'd see mum and dad like in tears of laughter, which is a very refreshing change from tears of pain looking at my sister's mental illness, right? So I would watch Billy Connolly and go, that is the way you make my mum and dad happy. And, <laughs> you know, we all... We also desperately want to make our mum and dad happy and, and to have feel like we have the affection of love of our parents. So I became very fascinated with the with speaking in public and how that how much joy that can spread. So from a young age, loved that, obsessed with that. But then I didn't think there were any jobs you could do as a public speaker, right? Like I thought stand-up comedian, no, nah, I'm not doing that. That's like I'd love to, but but not not quite funny enough. And so I just I don't know what my job would be. But I always thought I'd like to do that. Went through teaching and had this idea, came back to Melbourne and, and a friend of mine said, do you want to speak to my class about what you did in India? And I said, I think it'd be pretty boring, but I'm happy to come and do it. Went along, did this talk. I didn't plan it. I just had a few photos to flick through and I'll never forget the look on the kids' faces. And I remember she said, they're a pretty full on class, so um, be prepared. And I was like, oh, that's fine. Yeah, I'm a teacher. There's no worries. But there was no classroom management in that hour. It was the kids were captivated. Mm. And I got in the car afterwards. I was like, whoa, I am buzzing from that like that was awesome i remember thinking i'd love to do that every day but unfortunately that's not a job going around and telling that's not a job you can do so <laughs> i went back to teaching for a couple of years but i put into practice all the principles i'd learned in india with this group of year 12 kids who are a very difficult group of kids to teach and i saw the impact it had on them a guy i knew said i'm starting a business um i'm going to speak to corporates if you i would if you think you've got something to wait if you want to come and join me i said yep no worries and that He's, he was a wonderful guy. His name's Dave. Did it for six months, but we had no, it just wasn't going to work together because I wanted to do schools. He was doing corporate. It didn't quite work out. So then I was like, okay, now I'm a fish. I joined him, but now it's not happening. I don't have a job. I'm officially on my own. I've got to make some money. So I called my old school where I went. I called the Kerry. Then I called the school that I taught at and said, oh, can I come and give a talk? It'll cost, I think I charged like a hundred dollars, I think for an hour. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, that's a lot of money. But anyway, hopefully they can pay that. <laughs> And I just loved it. And it went so well. I was like, right, this is me. This is my full-time thing now. And then I started calling other schools and they were going, sorry, who are you? And who, who are where you? Have you? Yeah, Hugh. Yeah, Hugh. <laughs> and so where have you done your talks? I said, oh, Carrie and at Mould. And they went, yeah, where have you done it that wasn't your old school and where you taught? <laughs> and I'd go, oh, no, you'd be the first. And everyone's like, yeah, come back in a year. Let us know how you go. And no one would have me. I think I did like a talk a month and I'm down to $0. And I was like, oh my God, I love this, but it's just not going to work. Like it's just not. But then 
every now and again, I'd get these little wins like a school would go, oh, actually, when, can you come and do three talks today for these three? Yep, no, it's done. Can you come and speak about this? And it'd be something I don't talk about at all, but I'd go, yep, no, that's fine. I'll talk about that. And just sort of just said yes to everything. I remember one day driving five hours to Paul. I had a um, student session in the morning in Melbourne. I had nothing on for like a while, but a student session in the morning. And then I had to get to Portland by three o'clock in the afternoon. It was a five and a half hour drive. Then I had to get back to Melbourne to do a parent talk at like 8.30 at night of us. So I was like, drove to Portland and back in a day and did three sessions. And oh my just, I, I just, I was like, you cannot say no to anything. Just you have to say yes to everything. And then, but even then after two years, it wasn't enough. I also felt quite lonely because it was me doing it by myself. Like mm. after a couple of years, like I don't know if I can do this anymore. So I actually applied for a couple of jobs. I think it was a job at Headspace doing something in their school program. Wow. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'll do that. And then I didn't get that job. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I can't get that job, like, so, and then I think there was a job at Cricket Victoria, like education manager. I was like, oh, I'll get, I'll apply for that. Didn't get that job. I was like, gosh, like no one wants me. Like I don't have a girlfriend. I got like, like I can't get a job. And no one wants to hear me speak. I was so lost. But here's the thing. Back then I was not okay with vulnerability. So I didn't let anyone know. I was like, yeah, fine. Loving it. Life's awesome. Life's so great. Mm. I wish so much at least to my parents, I'd been a bit more honest and said, I feel so lonely at the moment. Like I'm very single and no one wants to not have anything to do with my program. Like I've just got nothing really, but I was to mum and dad, I was like, great. Yeah. So many good things happening, which oh, was a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we all kind of tend to do, but looking back, I'd be a lot more open with and a lot more self-deprecating. I'm a lot more like, yeah, no, things are flying. I've got no work and I don't have a girlfriend. So it's good. <laughs> You know, like we could take the piss out of ourselves a lot more than we do. But mm. then it just slowly started to, very slowly started to, I would go from one talk a month to one talk every fortnight, then to a talk a week. And then in 2000, and by 2000, so that was in 2011, I started that. By 2014, I was doing about 15 talks a week. Oh my God. I was like, I, yeah. I collapsed at a, on a stage in 2016 and it was the end I'd done. It was my fifth talk for the day, 17th for the week or something. Yeah, that was, Jeez. I was like, well, I went through two or three years of no one wanting to know me. All of a sudden, everyone wants to hear me talk. I'm not going to say no to anyone. I'm going to keep doing this. Like that's proper resilience, you know, and I wasn't really looking after myself, but I've sort of jumped ahead a little bit in the story, but it just took off. Like it just, I mean, from the outside, it took off. It was a lot of hard work, like a lot of hard work. And I think looking back on it, when people ask, oh, what was the secret to it? I worked very hard at something I think I was good at. Like I worked very hard at public speaking, something I already was quite good at. And so I think if people think I want to do my own thing, have a think about what is something you are very, very good at and does the world need it? Like, is there a dollar in it as well? Like there's, a, there's always a commercial reality to this stuff. So I felt like, yes, there's a need to talk about mental health in a very different, refreshing, lighthearted kind of, not all lighthearted, but accessible way. And I put my like blood, sweat and tears, so much tears into this program, mm. but it was something I was, I think, naturally good at, which definitely helps a lot. I think there's so much in that, like particularly when I was rereading the book the second time, actually, I'd forgotten how much of the timeline was way earlier than I thought Yeah. because you do sort of forget when you're describing it like it just took off. But actually, this is why I love having these conversations because it didn't really just take off. No, you had to stick no. at it for a yeah. long time and believe, and this is 
when you believe you've got a good idea, when people reject it, like it, it takes an enormous amount of resilience to still believe that you will find people who will be the right people who will believe that it's a good idea. And often when you're ahead of the curve in redefining a way of thinking or a product or a service, you will get a lot of rejections at the start because it is so different. So I think it's so important to remember that most people who do something differently do face a couple of years often of it not going too well and just sticking with it. Yeah, totally. And and being able to push through that self-doubt of like, actually, I think this is what the world needs. It, it just doesn't realize it yet. Yeah. But then also at the other end of the spectrum, most people in the beginning of their journey also then when it does take off, go the other end of the spectrum completely, can't say no because they've been a yes person to get there and then burn it out completely. Yeah, and totally. I think those, both of those sides are stuff you don't hear about as much in the telling of the story. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, there's so many things in that. Like I, for two years, I did emergency teaching three days a week or two days a week. That is the loneliest, most brutal existence on the earth like you think about when you're at school and an emergency teacher turns up you just go we are going to ruin this person's day <laughs> this is gonna, <laughs> like we're yeah. going to ruin this we've got the next hour to ruin this individual we don't care who they are and so i did that for like three days a week to try and pay the bills while i was trying to make this work so it wasn't just like swanning around to corporate functions and being a keynote speaker like mm. and then you finish like you'd finish a talk the one talk i had for a week and then just like you by yourself, I'd, like my office was my bedroom and I'd go home and go, okay, that was that. Um, cool. And it's pretty lonely. Like, and there, like, as I said, I, have, I don't think I've admitted this before any of the chats I've done, but there were, I, there were two or three times I tried to get out. Mm. If I got those jobs, like I wouldn't be doing this right now. And this is speaking in Melbourne on last Friday night. I think Abby was actually there on, on, on Friday night at the, mm. at the convention center. It was 2,400 people. And I had them for two hours. It was only meant to go fucking hour and 20, but that was so good. I just kept going. But I was sitting backstage before it and mum said, oh, hey, mum messaged me, said, how are you feeling? And I wrote back and said, it's pretty amazing. I'm actually living my dream right now. Like this is getting up and standing up in front of an audience like this. This is a dream come true. But there are so many times that I tried to get out to, to not pursue it. And I was heartbroken. That it, so it's funny. You just, I don't know. I feel like I mean, here, here's the other thing. The other thing you brought up, which I think is really fascinating, is feedback. When people say no to you and you get told no or you have people giving you negative feedback. And this is, I think this is quite a, a well-known sort of quote, but like everyone will want to give you feedback. Like everyone wants to give you feedback and whether it's people you know or you don't know. And if it's not someone you'd go to for advice, to me, like I don't give a fuck what you think. I mean, I do. No, no that's not true. I do. I, I, I do give a fuck away. I don't want to, but I can't help it, but I'm not going to take it on board. Mm. So this is, I listened to a um, podcast with Jerry Seinfeld and he said this thing that I, so there's a chapter in the book, which you would have read a few times now called dealing with critics or dealing with criticism. I can't remember what we called it. Yeah. And it was all about how like basically the way we can deal with people saying negative stuff about us and how we just got to step over it and move past it. And we're better than it. And Brenno Brown's thing about like, you know, let it drop, let it fall to your feet and then step over and all that kind of stuff. And I love that. But when I listened to Jerry Seinfeld's take on feedback, I was like, gosh, I don't actually live and breathe what I wrote in that chapter. Like I, I want to, I wish I didn't care what people thought. Mm. I wish I was like, well, I don't know you, so you, I don't care, but mm. I do. And this, I've realized it's actually fueled me massively. I've had quite a few people over the journey say stuff like, there was another organization in a similar space to us who said to me, well, we're already doing curriculum. I don't get why you're doing curriculum. Your, your, your curriculum is not great anyway, because we've actually think this is not good with your curriculum. That's not good with your curriculum. Um, our curriculum is already in school. So you, you actually shouldn't be doing this. And I was so hurt. This is what happened. I was so hurt for like a week, I reckon, by their, I thought they'd be good people who'd support what I was doing. I was so hurt by it and I was so shattered by it. 
And then the next week, I kind of just let that sink in. And two weeks by two weeks out, I was like, fuck that. Like, because of you guys, I'm going to make our curriculum so much better than yours. And mm-hmm. it drove me to our curriculum is now, and we've got 300,000 kids around the country doing our curriculum <gasps> every single day. I employed five writers to come in and actually rewrite the different elements of our curriculum. We've got now got a full-time lady called Leah, who is amazing, who just does this full overview of our curriculum, can, can always changing it, always updating, always making it better. If it wasn't for those people who told me they thought the curriculum wasn't good, it wouldn't be what it is now. And so I think sometimes you've got to, if you're the person who, like if you care what people think about you, that's also why you're doing really well in life because it's a nice, like it shows that you're, you know, you're a human being, you're sensitive, we're all can be sensitive. Let it hurt you, let that happen. And then be strong enough to just cop it in the face. And then you, a couple of weeks later, you say, okay, fuck you. <laughs> mm. Because of what you said, I'm going to make this, whatever it is, I'm going to grow because of what you've said. And I've realized looking back, that's what's happened to me. I've been driven by people's hurtful comments so many times. I've got countless examples. And it's funny how I talk on the podcast so much about self-doubt and your inner critic and negative self-talk is so destructive. But actually what I haven't spoken about as much, but you've made me really reflect on is that it's not just self-doubt, it's actual just external doubt. Like there will be people along the way who don't believe in what you do. And I also think, you know, that quote that comes back all the time of like sometimes not getting you want, not getting what you want is a brilliant stroke of luck. The fact that you weren't allowed to get out. Yeah. If you had been, if it had been up to you, you, the resilience project, we would have all been deprived of that in the world. And I think sometimes, like, it's not just self doubt; it's also external doubt that you're going to get. But that doesn't mean that it's not a good idea. It doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't of value. It just means that those particular people aren't your people. But if you hadn't, if the world hadn't conspired to make sure that this program came out, you could have easily been toppled, and it never would have seen the light of day. Yeah. So I think if anyone is in that. F- for that early phase where they're doubting themselves and have people around them doubting you, it's not the be all and end all. That doesn't mean that you should stop in your tracks. Like go and find other people who do think it's a good idea and, and make those the people that you surround yourself with. And and like you said, turn that external doubt into fuel. Yeah, totally. Like, you know, it can be something that fuels you. It's not that you ever want self-doubt or overall doubt to go away. I agree. I think it's a sign that you're not complacent and you're invested enough to care about doing a good job and and filling an actual gap and providing a good service, but just don't let it dictate your decisions. Totally. Totally. I, I love that so much. And I mean, the, I also love that, and I know that you talk a lot about like your inner critic and your, your negative self-talk and like I, I have that all the time. Like I, we started the national tour last week in Adelaide. We had two nights in Adelaide, then Perth and Melbourne. The half an hour before I went on stage in Adelaide, night one, I almost started writing down the stuff I was thinking. So like, this is just funny. Like, this is getting ridiculous. Like I was thinking, this is, you haven't done this in a year. You will have forgotten how to do this. Who are you to be speaking to all those people? Why have all those people given up a night to come and speak to you? It was like, it was so brutal what I was telling myself. And then I'd have those moments of like, shut up. Like, what are you, like, this is what you love doing. This is your favorite thing in the world to do. And now you're dreading it. And then part of me is like, you could go home. Like you could go back to the hotel. You could just get in a car and go. And like, you're probably saving <laughs> these people an hour and a half of their life if you do that. So like your inner critic, it can get out of control. So I was messaging my wife, Penny, go, um, I'm not in a very confident headspace right now. And she's like, well, what's wrong? And I was like, well, it's not ideal. 1,600 people sitting outside waiting for me. Anyway, it turned out to be fine. But yeah, negative self-talks, it's brutal. 
And something I loved from the book, which I imagine is something Penny says to you all the time, is actually by you letting your self-doubt overcome you, it's actually selfish because you are depriving the people who are out there who need to hear your particular message, which is why they're there. Like the fact that you didn't even want to write a book because you were like, oh, what have I got to say? Like, how is this going to be useful? And Penny sat you down and was like, that's selfish, you. You are depriving the world of a book that they need, which now, as you know, if you're writing a second one, I mean, you're going to have to tell the printer that Abby and I need one print run and everyone else in the world needs another one. <laughs> there is always someone out there in the world who needs exactly what you have. So by you letting yourself doubt overcome you, it's a selfish act because you're depriving yeah. the universe of, of your special skill, which no one else can, even if other people had come up with the, you know, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness matrix or methodology, like the way you deliver it with your unique you know, wit and self-deprecation and storytelling. Like even if someone did the exact same thing and used the exact same wording, they still wouldn't deliver it in the way you did. So by you not doing that, you are depriving the world of something special. So I think like- That's very nice of you to say that. (laughs) But uh, but you you make a good point. When it's about other people, not yourself, Ben Crow, who a lot of people are chatting about, Ben Crow, the most amazing man says, when, when you are interested rather than interesting, when that's your focus, life becomes really beautiful. And it's very true. Mm. Very true. Another thing I found really interesting reading is that, and it's so funny because I say this exact thing, is I've gone from being a corporate where I had like not just a five-year plan but a 50-year plan really to not having a five-minute plan. So reading that you have no five-year plan but a moment-to-moment plan, I was like, yeah, he's my people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are in a society where that relentless forward motion and progress and next and bigger is quite irresistible Mm. and growing a movement now that is so large. I mean, you sold out the convention center three times over. Meanwhile, you're doubting that you'd even get a couple of people there. What is next and how do you, do you have to resist that it's become bigger than you and it sometimes is growing faster than you can control or, you know, what are your big goals for what's next? Or are you just happy to sort of let things unravel and see, see where it takes you? It's a great question. Because I don't, I haven't really thought about it too much. Like I, I mean, I have a team of 16, 17 people here, 17 now. And there's a couple of people here whose full-time job is what's next for us. Like, what are we doing next? What is our strategic plan? Uh, we've an incredible girl, Kim Smiley, who just joined us, who her, she's all about our strategic plan for the next three to five years. So, but for me personally, I've never thought about it. I just, and you've read this in the book, but I, I really feel like if you, properly nail every moment that you're in while you're in it like really give it your full respect and attention and and effort then life will kind of take care of itself Mm. so i know i wrote that in the book and i thought oh but i i'm sure for a lot of people there's huge benefit in having a five-year plan and and i certainly wasn't saying to people don't go and do your five-year plan or whatever it is i think it's good to have that but for me what works best is just to be good in be as good as you can in each moment and it's hard like and even saying that I feel like a little bit of a fraud in that the area of my life that I care most about, like my kids. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no need to apologize. Like my kids, I, I need to get better at that, really showing up for them. Like I'm running around the country doing all these talks, which is great. And I think one day they'll be quite proud of that. But what they see right now is that I'm not home enough. Mm. And when I am home, like my phone's going berserk and it's like, trying to keep up with all these emails and Slack messages and, and Instagram DMs. And, and the Penny and I had a long chat. We went out for, we, we went, um, out for dinner on Saturday night. We had a long chat about like, we've got to, 
we need to get better at this. Like we need to between five and eight, we're just going to keep our phones in the car because we, yeah. Why am I even going down this path? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, actually, that was that was my next question anyway. That the paradox of doing something that you love and having a message that's so important is that the proliferation of that message then sometimes becomes more important than the message itself, which I think is the irony of many people who work in the area of yeah. wellness or mental health or you know resilience or any kind of self betterment area of life and. I was going to ask, you know, how do you find that balance between I came into this because I wanted to teach people about the importance of mindfulness mm. and putting your phone away. There's an, a whole chapter on social media and how to manage yeah. that in your life. But for you to deliver that message, you have to be on that platform. Yeah. And that paradox is really confusing. I, just as a side note, I love the command you have of the English language. It's very impressive. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's very good. I really like, I really like listening to you speak. Um, I was just oh, reminded thanks. of that as you, as you were speaking then. But um, I think I go through stages where I'm, I'm really good with my kids and really practice what I preach. But I do find moments where, you know, I'll be sitting at the dinner table and five minutes later I realise I haven't listened to what anyone said. And I'm, because I'm, I've just, you know, done a talk to, I don't know, wherever it is. Like mm. um, I remember we had an amazing, amazing 48 hours at Port Adelaide Football Club. I was just buzzing from and I came home and it was all about I was what I was changing them about was just like just just enjoy the little moments that pop up because we're and they're all talking about the moments that they are so lucky to have so grateful to have and I was joining in and some really vulnerable stuff in there and then I'm sitting around the dinner table with my family and I'm just still thinking about the session with the Port Adelaide guys and I'm thinking about their stories and I was like no come on like this is exactly what we spent 40 like you've been there you've had that experience it was great mm. but these are the people who need you most right now and here you are thinking about Port Adelaide Football Club. So I, I think I do pretty well with it. I mean, there, there's going to be a stage as well in my life where Penny and I have always said that it is so unfair that she, you know, Penny's so career driven. She's so intelligent and has so much to offer the world. Right now, she's offering everything she has to our two kids and home. And mm. there will be a point where she goes to work and I'm a full-time dad. When, when, um, and so I have that thing in my head as well. Of like, well, I've got another three or four years to give work everything. And then there'll be a point where, it is my job to stay at home and she goes and pursues her career. So there's also that in the back of my mind of like, we'll give it everything now. But then these are such beautiful years, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. I mean, it's hard, but it's beautiful. Like mm. it's just like our one-year-old daughter this morning, we're all sitting on the couch and she crawled over the three of us. This is like for 20 minutes and kissing all, she'd go, ma, ma, <laughs> and she'd kiss Penny, then she'd kiss me, then she'd kiss Benji, then she'd kiss Penny. And we were just laughing at her. Like, When's she going to stop? And she just kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> do it, do it. And I was like, yeah, we didn't get much sleep last night because of her, but my gosh, this is special. Like yeah. she's just kissed me 20 times in the last half an hour. She's not going to stop. Like we're going to have to stop it. She can't stop herself here. <laughs> she's got like red raw lips. And like- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I don't even know what I was talking about, but I think. I think um, it's oh, a juggle, right. right? Everyone's juggling priorities and no one gets it right. And- yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like with this national tour, I'm going to be away from home a lot. I just got to make sure I was like, like my mum said to me once a beautiful message. She, she pulled me up. I was on my phone in front of the kids and, and she said something like, you're not home enough as it is. Like when you're here, you could at least, and I said, no, no, you're right. And she said, no, but I know you talk about the impact on the kids, but I, I like, you're missing out. Mm-hmm. You're the one she said, because when I was your age and he was, and you were his age, my mum said to me, I saw everything you saw. I smelled everything you smelled. I heard everything you heard. I was there with you. And because of that now, I have so many moments of joy. You know, I walk past the jasmine bush and 
like I'm almost in tears of joy because I remember when you were a kid, you were so, you were so obsessed with the smell of jasmine bushes. So we go and try and find jasmine together for you to smell. And she said, I have those moments now, but I'm not sure you're going to get those when you're older because yeah. you're not properly living everything that your son and your daughter are living like we used to do. So um, my aim, and I'm saying this publicly, so to hold myself to account, <laughs> my aim is when I am at home, I'm, I'm going to properly be there for the rest of this year. Oh, that's really beautiful. And, <laughs> but it's a process, right? Like that kind of prioritization doesn't happen no. by itself. Yeah. I, I think the, the best thing for me is to leave my phone in the car. I know for me that works. Leave my phone in the car and when I get home and I can get it out again after the kids have gone to bed. Mm. I just had um, a week in the Northern Territory and we didn't have any signal but also no charges. So we had oh, wow. no time, no wow. clocks. The Indigenous culture has no concept for time. So they believe you wake up at sunrise and you go to bed at sunset and we were forced to surrender to not having even knowing what time it was. And it was the most enjoyable. Really? Present. I, I'm still now kind of resisting coming back to it because it was so freeing to not need to know where you are in time and space and the date. And like, it's unrealistic, obviously, to be like that all the time. But once you kind of let go of your phone, you don't want it back. Like, I didn't want it back. I was like, yeah, totally. yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah. What a great experience that is for you. Oh, well now I just want more of it. I'm like, do yeah. I want to be a bushwoman and just like retire <laughs> into the wilderness a little bit? <laughs> Before we move to uh, the last section, one thing I did want to touch on briefly, and I think for anyone listening, the most impactful and powerful way to hear Hugh's take on mental illness and, and this area, which is so incredibly important, especially now, is just to read the book because you mentioned me being having a good command of the English language. The way that you describe your sister's experience with anorexia, your family's experience around that, and then your wife's OCD as well and the way that manifests is so relatable. And I think if people don't know quite how to explain the experience to someone who hasn't experienced it, they have no chance of having empathy towards that. But you explained it in a way that I felt made it a lot more accessible to understand as an experience. And once you understand empathy and you you know that it's not, you know, her trying to, you know, Georgia trying to get attention or she's not just being annoying for the sake of it, like she actually has a mental illness. I think um, the whole book just covers it in such a, powerful and relatable way. I know it's probably not enough time to go into it, but is there anything you'd like to say about mental health at the moment? And I know the work you've done in football clubs in particular has touched a lot on how at risk people are these days of suicide, particularly men, and how mm. much re the Resilience Project has helped a lot of people intervene at an earlier stage, yeah. which is so important. Well, yeah, we're all about prevention. That's kind of the space we're in. The Mental Health Commission found that only 1% of funding goes towards preventive programs. It's 99% of funding goes towards like what happens at the other end when it's really bad. So we've always been about prevention and teaching people things they can do to make sure they don't go down that path. So I think for me, the thing I'm biggest on at the moment is, so the whole Are You OK campaign, it's a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful concept and it has done so much good. The more that I think about it though. I mean, they, they never, I don't think their point is to say, you need to use the words, are you okay? Mm. I think the words, are you okay? Are a little bit intimidating for a lot of people. And so there's a couple of things I want to say. I, I think I wrote about Luke in the book and you would have known the chapter on, you would know the chapter on Luke, a, a mm. score at my career club who, who took his own life. 
Well, he used to call me every month in the winter and just say, how long do he was an autistic man? He'd say, how long do cricket season? And I'd say, it's four months. And he'd go, that's a long time. Bye. And he'd hang, he'd hang up. And then a month later, how long do cricket season? It's three months. That's a long time. Bye. And, hang up. and he called me, he called me about two weeks before the season started once and said, how long do cricket? And I said, two weeks. And he said, that, that feels like a long time for me right now. Mm. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, oh shit, is he okay? That's, that's a pretty grim thing to say. I was like, oh, he'll probably be fine. A bit awkward. If he's, if he's totally fine, I say, you're okay. It's probably a bit awkward. I'll, and I hung up the phone. I said, yeah, I'll see in a couple of weeks. And I didn't ask him if he was okay. And then I remember telling Penny and Penny, Penny said, do you want to give him a buzz? Just check. And I said, I think he's fine. I think she said, well, do you want to catch up with him? Maybe catch up with him and just, and I said, I'll see him in a couple of weeks. He'll be fine. And two days later, I got a phone call from the president of our club, letting me know that he'd taken his life. And I was thinking, my God, my work is mental health. And even I didn't say, you're okay. Like, mm. And then I was thinking, oh, this is how hard it is. But I, and this, is, this is the opposite of having a go at, are you okay, Dave? It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's wonderful. I think for a lot of us, it, the question is not, are you okay? It's like the concept, you definitely ask people eventually, but the first question is not, are you okay? It's like time over with Luke. It's the question is, do you want to go have a beer tomorrow? Like mm. not, are you okay? Do you want to tell me something? What's, because... If I'm not okay and someone says, are you okay? My response is, I'm fine. And then I'll shut it down. Or I'll just feel like I've somehow made their day worse and I've let them down and I'm a drag on them. So time over the Luke, I would say, do you want to go a beer? And he'd probably say yes. And then we'd have a beer. And then half an hour into talking shit, I'd say, how are things, mate? What's going on? What's the, how are things at home? Or what's, what's happening with work? Or that's when you start to get little snippets of things where people will let you in. So if you know someone who you are, especially at a time like this, um, COVID, if you know someone who you are not totally sure about, they just seem to be a little bit more reclusive or potentially um, not engaging socially the way they usually do. Don't live with the regret that I do that you didn't. And and don't don't say are you okay because it's, I just don't think the question works. It's uh, what are you doing on Wednesday? Do you want to go have a coffee? Mm. Or, or if you love exercise, do you want to go for a walk? Whatever it is, think what that person would like to do with you, suggest it, and then you just like chip away. Like, and don't do it in a way they're going to go, are they trying to check if I'm okay? Just ask them what's good. Like, people love telling their story. Mm. If, if you think it's something about the kids or their partner, like, how's your husband going? How's your wife going? And let them talk and just listen to them. And the very act of sharing what you're going through is often all you need to do in order to unburden yourself of the shame you feel that situation. So that's my, I know you said you didn't want a long answer, but I've given you a long answer. And oh, is, no, I love a long answer. <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay, good, good. It's, um, <laughs> I don't know if you notice this, you and Abby have the exact same laugh. Do you know that? <laughs> no. Yeah, you get the same laugh. Do we because really? When, yeah, it's exactly the same. When I heard when she was on your podcast, I couldn't tell who was laughing. Her, I couldn't tell if she was laughing at her own jokes or you were laughing at her jokes. It's <laughs> probably both. <laughs> yeah, I think it's both, yeah. You had a bit of wine. I think that's possible. But um, Grape juice, you mean? Yeah, gra- sorry, grape juice. Yeah, grape juice. <laughs> it's um, funny though. I think that's something really valuable you said towards the end of the book was about vulnerability and that it doesn't come as easily to some people and it does take chipping away. It's not like a, are you okay? Oh, here's my life story. Now I feel better. Even mm. the story you told about Nick Rewalt, who I love, um, Kath, his wife was actually in Rwanda with us on that trip. Wow. The fact that he was so resistant 
because people often don't realize they have a moment of vulnerability or they even they're not even willing to like open up that door. Yeah. Sometimes it does take a bit to even get them in a position where they're willing to be vulnerable with you to be helped. So I think that's a really important reminder that you don't just go straight into it, you know. Totally. That that Nick Rewalt story, it's such a beauty. I, he's been one of my favorite players of all time and I had such a big crush on him his entire career. And then <laughs> And then, and I, and, I, and I know him very well now. He's a, he's a lovely guy. We get on very well. But I remember when he first walked into the session, I was at St Kilda Footy Club, a bit nervous. I was like, where's Nick Rewalt? And he walked in and went, oh my God, there's Nick Rewalt. And I was sitting next to the player welfare manager who'd organized the talk and he came over. He said hi to me. I was like, oh my gosh, he's awesome. And then he said to the player welfare manager, I don't need to be here for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but are you sure? I'm pretty yeah. sure I don't need to be here. <laughs> yeah, he, just, he goes, I don't know. I he goes, I'll go and get a rub down or something. It's a better use of my time. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh no. Anyway, he was Tough wonderful. Tough yeah, 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 exactly. No, he was, he was wonderful. We get on very well now, Nick and I. But. <laughs> I actually loved reading about how you fangirl people. Like you're like, oh, my God, all these famous people that I love that I've been following my whole <laughs> life and like you're trying to play <laughs> <Yeah>. cool. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at it. I'm yeah, I'm the worst. I'm so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so last section, your play TA. Now, I think you would of all people agree that you know in this whole world of productivity and achievement and progress that it's so important just to play and just to have activities that make you forget what time it is and that don't necessarily have a goal yeah like I think I try and rest but then I try and win at resting and I try and like a type everything (laughs) or I'll like (laughs) garden and then I'll try and like do a gardening course and become like a gardening influencer so I really need to just calm down and do things that I'm not trying to necessarily like improve at or do well at what are the things that you do that make you just forget where you are uh well it's funny i wouldn't say they're not attached to a goal but running is my absolute like i run i trained for 400 meters oh this is your masters you did the masters yes we had the masters three weeks ago we had the the 2021 victorian masters championships (gasps) uh, which is an activity i take way too seriously for a 40 year old but i'm training (laughs) I, I, when I was at school, I loved athletics, but then I chose cricket and played cricket till I was 35 and then stopped playing cricket. I was like, is it too late for athletics? Probably, but I'm going to give it a go. And I've, I've, I've ended up training with Katrina Bissett and the girls who are training for the Tokyo Olympics with Peter Fortune, Kathy Freeman's coach. He's our coach. And I'd, how I've ended up in that group of girls, I'll never know. Uh, they all came and <laughs> they all came and see me speak at the came and saw me speak at the convention center and they were backstage having a drink afterwards and Penny was meeting them all and stuff. And then, one of them said, it is a bit weird that there's this 40-year-old man who chases us around the track, but that's okay. <laughs> In any other circumstance, that would be really creepy. <laughs> totally, totally. It still is a bit, I think. But yeah, for me, it is the pursuit of trying to run 400 meters as fast as possible. I know it's goal-orientated, but, and it is kind of quite a competitive thing, but like I yeah I'm put- like what doesn't have a goal what's not successful oh I'm training with Kathy Freeman's coach <laughs> like just casually it's fine <laughs> um that's what got me through COVID was trying to like researching sprinting and like spikes and like different training approaches and different gym and like trying to so that was a big one but as far as play on the trampoline with my son that is like mm. that's a really special time we we have this amazing trampoline. He's obsessed with it. He's really good on it. And I love doing things that make him feel self-esteem wise. He's, you know, he can get a bit anxious at times, but we invent the most outrageous games on the trampoline. Like there's one at the moment, we have a fit ball and we put it in the middle and we just call it ballie. And the aim is to not get touched by ball. He goes, what do you have for ballie? And wherever you jump, the ball goes to, so you try and dodge ballie. That's the game we're playing at the moment. Then we played another one last night where 
you run to the fence, touch the fence, jump on the trampoline, run to the table, touch the table, then jump off a chair. And then you just keep doing that. And I said, what's this game called? And he said, this is called run and touch the table and jump <laughs> off the couch and then jump onto the chair and then jump on the trampoline and then laugh and then lie on the trampoline with daddy. And I was like, that's a good day. Oh, yeah, so, great. Patent that one. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, really catchy. Yeah, that's it. So the first half an hour that my daughter Elsie is awake for and everyone else is still asleep, opening the door, it's awful at like 5.30 in the morning when she gets up, but she's just standing with the biggest smile on her face and you open the door and she squeals like she just cannot believe you've opened the door. Oh. And you get her out of the cot and you, I just lie on the floor because I'm still very tired. And just her crawling around you, lying on top of you, grabbing all her soft toys. She's such an affectionate person. We're very similar. We're both very, very affectionate people. So we cuddle <laughs> each other a lot. Stage five clingers. Yeah, that's yeah, the two of us. Yeah, Penny is not the most affectionate sort of thing. Same with Benji. So, but Elsie and I just cuddle all the time. <laughs> and so, oh, that's so cute. So, so that is a, doing that is like a, a, that's definitely a thing where I feel like there's no goals attached to it. There's no got to win at this. There's no like got to be the best at this. It's just a very lose yourself in like the mm. love I have for my daughter. Um, you know, she's just, oh my God. I love kids for that reason. I think that they live so in the moment oh. and their needs are so immediate. And yes. they, I've got a lot of friends who have young kids. If you're, if you pick up your phone, they know. They're yeah. like, excuse me. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, totally. Like, I want your attention. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> whereas whereas as, as adults, if someone picks up the phone, we go, oh, I'll do it as well. And then we just lose ourselves as well. Whereas kids, yeah. are, kids are like, like whoa, yes. whoa, whoa, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I also love with the track and field that I think we do get this big barrier in our brains that firstly, we don't want to be a beginner, be a beginner at anything. Hmm. We often think it's too late to start things. And we also think like, if I can't go pro, then this is not worth doing. And I think by cutting out all of those activities, we miss out on playtime because like if you're, you know, play seems like a waste of time because it doesn't tick all those boxes. But I think why lose your inner child? Like we've played forever. And the more you stay in touch with, like we take life so seriously, the more you have a you know, a couple of hours a week where you just throw your body around or do random stuff that is, you know, not related to your vacation, the better you are as a human. Like I feel like it makes you bring so much better energy back to your work. It was. The, I couldn't agree more. It was the most wholesome. So the Victorian Masters, it's like anyone over the age of 30 can be part of the Masters, right? And everything you just said then, I was like, well, I haven't trained in ages. I'm not going to be good when I start. I'm going to feel very, very out of place. Three years later, it's like one of my favorite things I've ever done, but I was at the master's championships and I'm watching like 85 year old men do javelin. <laughs> and I'm telling you now, the guy I was watching, if he'd just dropped it, it would have gone further than he managed to throw it. Like if he'd, <laughs> if he'd accidentally dropped it while he was trying to throw it, it was like, he went half a foot, but he's done his big run up, all his stretches. And, oh. he's done his, and it's just like topped out of his hand. And he's like, looked at it and just sort of like hands on his hips, did this like very satisfied nod and like his wife clapped him. And I was like, this is just, <laughs> This is great. Like, this is what it's play. Like it reminded me of the primary school athletics where everyone has a go. Like you all do it. Everyone has to, every house you have to represent your house in a certain event. It had that feel to it. I mean, yes, I was taking it way too seriously. And I saw my arch nemesis and I was like, I must beat him. I must beat him. So I can be happy. (laughs) I was like, this is the most beautifully wholesome thing you could possibly do until I take it way too seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Until you come and ruin everyone's fun by like (laughs) being too intense. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Just before COVID, we started doing gymnastics classes, but not like learning gymnastics, but like tumbling, like just somersaulting into the pit and then trying to get out of the pit. And it was no joke, 
my favourite part of the week. Like I would hang out to Friday so we could tumble. How much fun. I feel like saying unbridled joy, but I actually don't know what unbridled means. What is unbridled? No, I feel like it's got to do with a horse. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually trying to get an equestrian related person on the podcast so I can have an episode called Seize the Nay. (laughs) 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 And I really want to do like it. So another thing, I took Eat, Pray, Love really seriously when I got into like play to yay as a concept and went to like pottery and you know I've been doing all the random classes we went back to do um laser force like that you know game yeah, yeah, oh, it's yeah. been it's been so much fun but I want to do a pottery class called seize the clay <laughs> um for Mardi Gras last year we did seize the gay it's just great it's, yeah it's endless it is endless it's, it's, it's uh... actually terrible <laughs> oh, to dude. finish up Last second, last question. Three yep. interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. Okay, like weird party tricks or snoring habits or. Well, I'm a prolific sleepwalker, which is, I mean, I think I've talked <gasps> about that a bit. Pro- prolific, the weirdest shit that is quite scary. Like, oh. I remember Year Nine camp. We arrived at this. It was sea kike and we got there after dark, and the the camp instructor said it's actually too dangerous to go down to the river to get water right now for our drink bottles. So sorry, there's no water. We'll get up in the morning early and go and get it. And my tent mate, Kyle, one of my best mates, woke up at three in the morning and I was standing outside the tent with a full water bottle. And I said, everyone's down the river. And he goes, shit, really? You know, yeah. And he goes, oh gosh, so he gets his water bottle and gets out and he goes, no, they're not. Everyone's in their tent. And he said, did you just go and fill out your water bottle? And I went, I think I'd scratches all over my legs from like bush bashing <gasps> through the river. And we got there the next day. It was so hard. You have to have someone holding you into the river to like get the water out. And I went and did it by myself, like sleepwalking. So that's, so I'm a prolific sleepwalker. Do you um, remember it the next day? Like, nah, do you not have... at all. I just had scratches on my legs in a full bottle of water. So, oh so my then... <laughs> God. I sleep eat. So I'll find like avocado skins. What? With a spoon, like next to Are you me. Serious? I haven't, and I won't remember it at all. That, well, that's an amazing level of sleepwalking. Like I will literally, so I don't, I'm not really a big sweet tooth, but in a hotel, like if there's chocolate, I'll wake up with the chocolate wrapper next to my head. You're kidding like, me. I don't even eat that. I don't even like that chocolate. That's amazing. Um, there you go. That's a good one. Um, this is just a really weird one. And people don't believe me when I tell them this. So the classic primary school thing, ask my mum, but um, I was allergic to water. <laughs> Shut and up. I was, I was like this boy in the bubble, like so sick all the time. And we do all this allergy testing and they just eliminated all these foods one by one. And by the end, I was having like rice crackers and water and buckwheat pancakes. That's all I was eating for like three days. Took water out and I was, and I drank milk and I was, I was fine. And so oh I was allergic to water. Gosh. It wouldn't kill me. Like it just, I'd just get really sick and really run down and like just basically go to sleep when I had too much water. How weird is that? So that's <laughs> So that's something I've never said out loud to an audience like this. Um, How do you stay hydrated? Well, I can drink water now, just but if I drink heaps, I still start to feel a bit sick. So I get this um, like purified water. Like I have this, well, I don't now, but I used to when I was growing up, have this like thing on the tap to sort of purify the water when it came through. So yeah, how weird's that? Oh my God, the diva is next level. You need a chair facing the right way. You need a three-quarter latte <laughs> and like a special tap that follows you around wherever you go. <laughs> <laughs> What's another one? I'm Sri Lankan. Well, half Sri Lankan. My dad's Sri Lankan, which which you, uh, yeah, a lot of people. Stop. Yeah, I don't look it. I know it's a bit weird, but yeah, there you go. I'm a very proud half Sri Lankan man. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that's it. That's one for you. Uh, what else have I got for you? What else is, um, oh, I had it when I was in primary school, I had a stutter which people find hard to believe because I'm a public speaker. but And from time to time, it comes back in the worst possible moments. I did the Today Show 
my first ever appearance on the Today Show. I, Georgie Gardner asked me a question. I couldn't speak. Oh, and I was no. like, you've got to be kidding me. My stutter from when I was a kid has just come back. Um, oh, it's always in like the most inconvenient situations. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'd, I've sort of, I'm okay with it now, but it was just, I don't know what happened. I remember my brain going, God, imagine you got to stutter now. And then sure enough, it happened. No. It's because you said that. I reckon it's because yeah. your brain like manifested it. Totally. totally yeah. So anyway, there you go. There's a, there's a few things that I don't talk about too often. They're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. And very last question, since I love quotes so much, what's your favorite quote? And you are not allowed to say the man in the arena quote because A, it's in your book. B, it's like 10 pages long. And C, the last four people have had that as their favorite quote. So really? I'm going to make you pick another one. And I don't totally, like, I do believe it. I totally believe it, but it doesn't work for me. I can't say, oh, yeah, I'm, okay. the, I'm in the arena. You don't have a right to criticize me. I still get hurt by it. So it doesn't work for me. It's, it's a beautiful quote, but yeah. So I thought long and hard about this. Um, I went and saw a movie, Jojo Rabbit. I don't know if you saw Jojo Rabbit. And there was a quote at the end and I was there with Penny, I think it was. And as I was looking, I just got tears in my eyes the second I saw it. So the quote is, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. I I do feel like on the topic of resilience, it's just a lovely reminder to us that we can get really stuck sometimes in negative emotion and self-doubt and all the stuff we've talked about. But it is so important to remember that no feeling is final. And and but that's the same when you're in it extremely you know feeling so happy and like it's not gonna last forever it's just it's a moment and um yeah keep going no feeling is final i think that's a lovely a lovely quote oh what a beautiful way to end thank you so much hugh this has been so delightful i could talk to you for hours but i feel like the puns will just be too forthcoming and you'll hate me so um, i'm gonna cut myself off you are speaking to someone who this is how much i love puns i was running with a girl the other day called abby not not Abby Jelmy, another girl, Abby Delamont. She's an amazing runner. And we were, we were running together and we were running along the Yarra and I stood on a stick and it was just stuck on my shoe. I couldn't get it off. And she goes, oh, it's a bit sticky. And I couldn't <laughs> like, I couldn't stop giggling for the rest of our run. It was like another half an hour and she's so fast. I, I, we could talk for a long time because I, I love a good pun. But thank you. <laughs> hours of fun. Hours. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Sarah, thank you so much for having me. I love, uh, yeah, as I said, love the podcast and love everything you're about. So it's a, it's a huge honor to be on your podcast. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. The honor is mine. <laughs> I know I use positive adjectives a lot on this show and have even had a not so constructive few reviews for being too bubbly, if there's even such a thing. But with guests like this, is there really any wonder? I hope some of you have caught the spark that I did from Hugh's infectious passion, vulnerability and fabulous storytelling and cannot recommend more highly that you follow this one up by reading his book, The Resilience Project. I'll link it in the show notes. As usual, I'm always so proud when the neighbourhood showers our guests with love for sharing so generously with us. So if you enjoyed or took something away, please share it, tagging at Hugh Van Kylenberg. Get the spelling from the episode title and us of course so we can reshare hope you are all having a wonderful week and a seizing your yay